Hi, I'm Mick Cronin and this is What's Your Cause, a podcast in which I interview a variety of guests about a cause that is close to them, something they feel passionate about. I want to start a conversation that educate, inspire and shine a light on causes around the globe that can or are having a significant social impact. But here's the kicker. Each guest will nominate the next and become a chain that will lead from my very first guest to my last and ultimate guest of season one, Barack Obama. Got your attention? Thought I might. So hello and welcome to episode 14 of What's Your Cause? In this episode, I speak with Rona Glynn McDonald. Rona is a proud Cadish woman who grew up in Central Australia. With her ties to storytelling, economics and narrative change, Rona works with First Nations organisations to shape future systems that centre First Nation people, knowledge and solutions. She's the founding CEO of Common Ground and director of First Nations Futures. Through her work with First Nations communities across Australia, Rona aims to create future systems that centre First Nations people, knowledge and cultures. I feel very lucky to have known Rona now since 2019 and whenever I'm in her presence I always feel so enriched and I always feel like I'm you know, always learning something new and I hope for you the listeners that's the same uh, in this episode. So with that let's get into episode 14 of Watch Your Cause with Rona Glenn McDonald. So, Rona, welcome to Watch Your Cause. It's good to be here. We, I don't know if you listened to this before, but we generally just jump straight into it. We don't mess around. So, Rona Glenn McDonald, what's your cause? My cause is creating futures that center First Nations people, knowledge and self-determination in everything and creating space for our communities to have resources to meet our aspirations for the future in whatever those aspirations may be. And how do you go about achieving that? It's a great question. I go about it in many ways and I feel like the way I go about it is constantly evolving and I know the way that I go about it today is different to the way that I'll go about it in a year's time. I like to think of life in seasons and we're often evolving and adapting the way we respond to the world, but also the way we operate in our work. I'm a young person and for the last, how many years? Oh my gosh. The last 10 years, I've been moving between Melbourne and Alice Springs where I grew up, also known as Mbantua uh, in Aranda country, which um, is a beautiful part of the world. And As a young person, I grew up in a context surrounded by my family and like all First Nations people, I grew up surrounded by storytellers, but more specifically, I grew up surrounded by filmmakers and from the power that I saw growing up of camera and lenses in shining a mirror up to Australia and creating space for our communities to tell our stories our own ways as a form of healing and resistance. I saw how powerful stories are and the way that I want to drive futures that align to my cause is through storytelling. So the way that that looks like now is I am leading a not-for-profit called Common Ground, which is focused on sharing and amplifying and strengthening stories from First Nations communities across this continent and surrounding islands. And through shifting mindsets, thinking back to when I was a young person, 
you know, I saw the power of storytelling, but I was also really curious about the way that systems didn't center the aspirations and voices and stories of my community and First Nations communities across the central desert. And I wanted to know more about that. Why was it the case? And the economic system was one of the systems that I was really interested in. Um, Money, houses, jobs, growth. If you have a go, you get a go. All these ideas of have more, do more, be more. Um, We have to consume more. We have to own more. We have to grow and continue to grow. And that was so incompatible with a lot of the narratives that I heard around Mbantu Alice Springs and also in my home, in my family context, in our kitchens, the way we spoke about things and the way we thought about the world. Um, so I went and studied economics at uni and as you do, <laughs> as you do, you went and studied economics at uni and, um, learned about money, learned about those systems, learned about the way that our economies operate. And I thought it was all bullshit. <laughs> I was like, who decided this? What old white man decided this would be? And why are we still subscribing to this? Cause it's so clear from my perspective that country is hurting it's not sustainable we have too many people we're having too many negative externalities in the way that we live in the world you know negative externalities meaning you know negative outputs or outcomes from whatever we're doing my partner keeps telling me that I um I shouldn't use you know check myself when I use these words or terms because they're not accessible so I'm just going to try and explain everything I say um but for a listener I'm sure people know this shit but it's just to make sure um yeah, it's just so clear from my perspective that everything's broken. And in the context of, you know, Melbourne and Nam and this social change community here, I began to think about like why, why was this the case? And when we look at a system like the economic system, which I was deeply embroiled in, why does that system operate and continue to create the same outcomes every time? Because individuals you and I believe it should be (laughs) and we behave in particular ways if we changed our behavior and everyone changed our behavior in the economic system we change the system but because our behavior is built upon our own mindsets and narratives we're going to continue to hold those mindsets and narratives and continue to operate in those systems the ways that we have always done and the only way I see that you can shift a mindset is to bring a story into the fold. It's storytelling and relationships and conversation and dialogue that shift narratives and mindsets. So after studying economics, I was like, all right, so we want to change this system to send to First Nations people. I want to change every system to send to First Nations people because since the first moments of colonisation, we've been pushed out of those systems through dispossession and assimilation and all of the incredibly harmful past injustice and current injustice that we continue to face. And the way that we're going to create futures that really shift power and resources to our communities and put our communities at the centre is storytelling. So that's how I'm doing it. It's storytelling and it's not my stories because no one wants to hear me yabber on apart from you. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt that very much, Rana. I've I've heard you speak many a time, but I doubt that very much. You've been humble there. (laughs) Thank you. 
I was just going to say it's, you know, for me, it's about amplifying other people's stories. It's about strengthening the capacity of our storytellers, creating space for networks, space for people to build pathways, spaces for people to see themselves as storytellers. And we need to grow our storytelling ecosystem so we're telling stories for our own communities in our own communities but also we're sharing those stories more broadly and that's all of you know the core focus of our work at common ground is centered on that um but beyond that (laughs) the other piece of the course how i'm doing it is um creating space to shift wealth and power to our communities which I am part of a collective of First Nations people that have set up another not-for-profit called First Nations Futures, which is creating pathways for all people living across Australia to redistribute wealth to community organisations that have critical needs for funding and are doing amazing intergenerational work in their communities. So that's the answer, the long-winded answer. How do I go about working for my cause? Well, thank you for that answer, and um, it's um, it's very impressive the way you are going around it, um, going about it, should I say. If we go back then a little bit, I love the, I'm really interested, I love the part like where you studied economics, and from studying economics, you started to realise other things that you were seeing, and other things that weren't right, um, through something like that, like, because economics, obviously, value, monetary, um, supply and demand, all of that, yeah? When you think of the wealth of storytelling, when we talk the richness and wealth, I just I think about the knowledge and and what is what is kept or what is known from First Nations people that it's not actually being shared enough, you know. Um, and obviously, what you're doing is is bringing that to the forefront as well. Is that the case? Like, do you feel that as well? Like, do you feel like there's this complete another wealth of knowledge that just is not getting heard and Mm. what has shifted for common ground from when you started to where it is now and how that has if it has shifted which I'm sure it has Mm. it's interesting when you think about that wealth of knowledge and value and Mm. our economic systems both within this continent and abroad don't value that knowledge right we talk about all these different forms of capital in economics and as a I must have been 18 or 19 I think I was in my second year of uni and I was engaging with the UN Economic and Social Council and it was the beginning of the sustainable development goals and they were being launched in New York and I was there and there was nothing in the goals that spoke to culture and First Nations knowledge and this is something that I've continued to find so challenging within our economic systems is where do we place value and how do we value it? And cultural capital, you know, beyond physical capital, human capital, land capital, cultural capital is this idea that no one was really talking about. And there's a bit of a growth in it now, but I wrote a paper about it back then, speaking about how we need to centre cultural capital and value it in particularly sustainable development agendas. Because where I come from, jobs aren't about you know going and sitting down and getting some money and you know just doing any kind of economic activity to bring home the bread jobs only work when jobs center 
what we care about and what we care about as blackfellas is our culture, is our country, is our kinship, is our relationships. And that was something that I found really challenging when I studied and I spoke about it a lot post-study and really was informing a lot of the work early days at Common Ground is we have the most incredible knowledge systems that have been held since the first moments of time. Non-Indigenous folk don't value them. And even in our communities, um, because of assimilation, because of dispossession, because of colonisation, there are less opportunities for us to keep passing those knowledges on to the next generations and making sure they remain strong. And knowledge is everything. Um, So Common Ground, really, in those early days, the first project we ran was called First Nations Bedtime Stories, and it was focused on working with elders and knowledge custodians who have dreaming stories that they hold and they're owners of to record those dreaming stories, to map them to school curriculum and to share them within community, but also across many communities around this continent and surrounding islands. And through that, make sure that these incredible dreaming stories would be held strong for those communities for generations to come on a public archive. We've got a map now that displays all the stories and they're all public stories you know not every story can be shared not every piece of knowledge is um, meant to be yeah shared beyond a family group or a a clan group but these stories are public stories and it's just been the most amazing project we've done five years now and you can see all across this map all these stories that people in classrooms or parents can show their kids and my big dream when we started that project was how we might you know 10 20 years 30 years down the track have even more stories and this depository of knowledge that um our communities value but also other other folk can also value and and learn from and connect with so common grounds work has been really important from my perspective in showcasing the value that our our knowledges hold and giving space for people to write about it on their own terms and celebrate it, but also to embed it, you know. Um, We shifted a lot of our language over the the years. You know, when we first started, we spoke about Common Ground as being a place to celebrate and embrace First Nations cultures, which after a couple of years I was like, oh, that's a bit fucking bullshit. Celebrate and embrace. We don't want white fellas to embrace and celebrate us. We want you to put us at the centre, to shift power to us, to make space, to step back, to put our knowledges at the heart of what you're doing, not, you know, invite us along so you can clap and um, celebrate us. (laughs) It's really about that shifting power and that's been a really important piece in um, developing and emerging and growing as an organisation. And it's been interesting. I remember I had a bit of a internal challenge around getting buy-in from our comms team around the idea of centering because they're like oh it doesn't make sense it's not concrete (laughs) but since we started using that language I've been seeing it pop up everywhere which has been really amazing to see I'm not going to say I'm not going to claim that Um, I don't think that was just us but like this move of yeah really taking these terms and and centering them lol Uh, (laughs) but really you know embedding them and I think there's been a really big shift in language across these movements for storytelling and and social change for First Nations communities and we're really putting our power and our demands out there more than we have before which I think is really exciting. 
you should take credit for that if you're hearing it everywhere. But um, yeah, it, it it it's just so simple, but it actually is so it's so powerful too. Um, that that, that word centered. I'm really interested in the bedtime stories. Different cultures, there's different cultures in different communities, and you would have, I would have imagined, you had to approach um, various family and clan, as you say, to share them stories. And as you said, some are public and some are kind of sacred, and and that 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 I imagine stays within the family and clan. And um, did you have any kind of you know, resistance or a little apprehension in regards to people sharing these like stories. Because I imagine they're very connected to them. It's, you know, historically passed down through their families and, and so forth. Did you have that at the start? I think the first time we went out to community, it took a while, as it should, you know, building trust, relationships that are long-term not just darting into community and extracting stories. It took a lot of conversations. And the first year we did it, I was directing and producing, or mostly directing, I'm not going to claim I produced the whole thing, um, directing the series. And I went across the Central Desert to a few different communities and um, knew some of the people that we were working with, but a lot of them I didn't. So it took a while to build that trust and, Every year it's gotten easier because people see the longevity of the project and they also see, you know, common grounds and the reputation that we have, which is pretty strong in community. Um, from my perspective, it's not, you know, we're not in every community. But, yeah, I think people seeing the impact and seeing how these stories can be held for a long time feel really good about it. And these are public stories, so it's a story that, anyone can hear so I think because of that there is um an element of people being at ease but all these negotiations take a really long time you got to have the owner of the story the manager of the story happy there's often other people that need to be talked to but our model moves in a way that we essentially hand over the money and the power to a local director and producer who are from that community who are blackfellas who have some experience in film and they do a lot of that work and we just trust them and support them and back them in whatever ways they need. You know, they're often working with their family, their, you know, grandparents or aunties or uncles and they know their community better than anyone. And in the end, it's, you know, it's their asset. We do share it in schools. We do have it online, but we want them to own it and have autonomy over it and really create their own space for this storytelling in the ways that suit them. I'm fascinated, but... Like before Common Ground, was there anyone doing this? Like where were these stories being shared? And because you, it seems like you've brought it into a digital age, like and and of using what's around you to actually go, there's just something missing here. Was it the case that there was a bit of a gap and the younger generation, um, you know, First Nations uh, peoples were not getting these stories or access to these stories? Yeah, there wasn't many spaces that these stories were shared beyond family relationships and connections or at least not readily available um, through public means and public online spaces you know back in the day my family um, were at the beginning of the indigenous media movement and there was a lot of stories that were recorded during the 80s and 90s and a lot of those stories then sat in archives and archives still today that are falling apart and really hard to access there's definitely like community media spaces that are recording 
these stories and making them accessible to community. So we're not the only ones. And, um, you know, over the years, we're seeing more and more people operating in this space, which is so important. The more stories we can record and hold for future generations, the better off we'll be. The challenge comes to, you know, the archiving once these stories are recorded and we've kind of just chosen public stories because we know that, you know, in the future, the negotiations, they can be public unless a family contacts us and says they can't be public. And we don't have to sit in archives trying to figure out who can have access to what, which is a really tricky scenario that a lot of spaces are trying to deal with now that did that recording in the 80s and 90s and now have all these amazing knowledges and amazing stories and no idea how to get them back to community. Do the stories ever change or adapt or evolve? I think storytelling is always changing and adapting and evolving. It's interesting that, like, in the Central Desert, there's a system of knowledge holding called the Kurukula system, which means there's an owner and a manager of a story. The owner will always be present when the manager tells the story but the manager tells the story and it's this two way. It's like, you think about, um, it's like peer review, you know, the academic sense of like, you get your, you know, you tell your story in your paper and then people review it to add their bit in. But like, there's a way of like accountability. I don't know if that's the best analogy for it, but this idea that there's always two, you know, it's um, making sure that as that story's passed down, there's multiple people responsible for it. People that speak and people that sense check in the background that give the critique, make sure it's all good behind the scenes. And I think because of that, stories have remained really strong in the essence of how they always have been. But, you know, people get creative. I've heard stories that include corrugated iron um, and, and storytelling is sacred no matter the form, like dreaming stories and song lines and this deep storytelling that has been held since the first moments of time. That's, that's one form of storytelling, but also the stories that our young people are dreaming up are also sacred stories as well. And, you know, those traditional stories that are still strong now, they do adapt. Um, and some of them are newer than others, but they're all incredibly rich and full of knowledge and relationships and connections to place. And this is a bit left field question. You just, it just sprung to my mind. Obviously in the world we live in now, with everything around us, is AI uh, a friend or is AI a threat or is it somewhere in between? What do you think? Is it an opportunity or is it something that, you know, is a, it could be a, be a negative? I would say we don't think about the world enough in shades of grey and I think AI is a shade of grey for me. I think that in terms of storytelling, our storytelling is so deeply connected to relationships and people. It's the space between things. And I think that's something that AI is really bad at being able to move through. My experience and my layman's perspective is that AI is amazing at being able to collate and bring many ideas together, but it's the space between those ideas and the relationships between those ideas, which is where AI may flail. So yeah. um, that's my perspective, but also I do use AI in my work sometimes. I love a bit of chat GPT, building evaluation frameworks. <laughs> who, who doesn't? Who doesn't? And <sighs> um, when you get chat GPT, then you're trying to get it and go, how do I not make this look like it is actually chat GPT? <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's the, next, that's the next one on top of that. When I first 
came across, I was like, you kidding me? You know, I think that at the start is kind of scary, but then once you see where the benefits can be and where you use it and where you don't need to use it and, and there's no place for it. If we come back to common ground as well, you talk about bedtime stories as well. For the listeners as well, what can you talk about um, other stuff that you're doing, uh, other stuff that Common Ground is doing that's um, progressive at the moment? And, and maybe you can also talk about, if you want to, some stuff on the horizon. So Bedtime Stories was our first project. It was a project that existed before we even had a team. Uh, it was our first funded thing. And it went for a couple of years until we actually built a team in 2021 and slowly scaled our work and strengthened what we were doing and understood more about the space that we held and the impact we were trying to create. We work across this area that we define as amplifying voice, which is about strengthening the capacity of our storytellers and bringing a microphone to those stories and storytellers. So we pay contributors and storytellers to create content, whether that's written, audio, film, poetry, photography, all different forms of digital storytelling. And we run programs like we run a program called the Creators Circle, which backs eight First Nations creators to strengthen their storytelling capacity and create content for common ground. And our website somehow has become a bit of a go-to resource for people to be able to connect to our knowledges and learn more about Blackfellas, which is awesome. But we also see it as a really important space for our communities to have our own spaces for storytelling and for our storytellers to be able to really shape stories that are completely on their own terms and share stories in safe ways. You know, for a lot of storytellers, sharing with the media or white spaces can often be quite harmful, but we really pride ourselves in creating a blackfella operated space where people can come to us and, and trust us with their knowledge and, and stories and we'll respect that. Um, we continue to work across the education system. We've got a project that we've worked on once before, back in 2021, way back when, called Dreamy, which is a series of sleep stories from First Nations storytellers and poets, which was such a powerful series. The sleep stories are around 15 minutes long and they support anyone who listens to them to really connect to country and drift off into dream in ways that have First Nations knowledge and perspectives and language at the centre. We released a series back in 2021 and it went gangbusters on Spotify. I think it was the second most listened to podcast in the lifestyle category after Joe Rogan. And no <laughs> we're way. coming back. I know, wild. We're coming back with another series early next year and I plan to kick him off his pedestal. That's one of my big intentions for 2024. I love that. You're going for 2024. Joe Rogan, kick him off his <laughs> kick him off. Yeah. I love that. I've actually, I can see why it's um, so popular because I have listened to someone and it's, it's beautiful. Your website is 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 beautiful in, uh, in so many ways. Like, I feel really comfortable when you're in it, like it's engaging, but it's also, um, I think I spoke to you before. We had, we've had conversations. I remember having one where I was like, well, I, I, like, sometimes I don't know where to go to find knowledge or I don't know where to go and ask or I don't, and I feel being, you know, 48-year-old white, guy um living you know obviously come from Ireland living in Australia and and not 
growing up here. I don't, I'm not afraid, but I just, I probably am a little bit tentative to ask because I just don't want to offend or I just don't want to say the wrong thing. And I've had this conversation with you um, saying like, what should I, how do, how do you get to learn this? Do you get anyone else that kind of talks about that or has that? Because that's my just personal thing. And, uh, you know, knowing you helps me with that. But it's it's out there. And I think when you go to your website, that really breaks down a lot of that as well because you can kind of, you know, hear, see and feel and connect. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think we have through Common Ground created what the name says, a bit of Common Ground, a bit of shared space where it reduces the labour for First Nations people as well to always be answering those questions and fielding those questions. Like we have a lot of content on the website that is created in an article kind of education format, which is often written by our team, not by contributors. And that content is there to support people on their learning journeys and support them to really continue towards solidarity and active allyship. And that was a really important part of where we started as an organisation. And I think we've moved a bit from that, but it still is an important thing that we shouldn't forget. Got to make sure it's in our strategy. which we're writing at the moment. I'm writing a five-year strategy, which is fun and also very daunting, but we're almost there. Uh, But yeah, it's real, that kind of fear that people have. Um, And it takes relationship, right? And I think we see Common Ground as an opportunity for people to learn a bit, to build confidence, to then be able to really deepen their relationships with community on the ground and go to local events and and meet local um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because it's through relationship holding that we really do that mindset shift work and how we can make ongoing change. And Common Ground's just one part of those journeys. Schools, just quickly on schools. I like I asked my daughters before we were gonna do this interview about what they learn in school and so forth and, and you know, is what's the education like that? And one of my daughters said, Oh, last year we learned about the stolen generation. I said, Well, what do you mean? Did you learn a lot about like did you learn anything else around the you know, cultures and, and going that and it, like it was really, uh, it was around stolen generation. Then I asked my other daughter who's younger, she's in grade seven. My daughter was in grade eight at that time. She's in grade nine now. Mm. Um, and I asked my other daughter who's in grade seven, just going into grade seven. And she said, oh, a tiny bit, but not much. And I was like, wow, you can see that they, they, were, they would like to, you know, like they, they were interested as well. But um, how do you play, how do you see an opportunity there? How do you play that part at the moment? And, and is there an opportunity to do more? We know that across schools, young people all get a different experience because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures is a cross-curriculum priority, meaning that it can be embedded, but it's not compulsory. means that we're often relying on principals and teachers to be able to drive that work in the classroom, which teachers are very time poor. So it's really challenging for teachers to bring this content into classrooms in a way that's really meaningful and also safe. That's for primary and high schools. But when you look at the early, early childhood um, space, it is compulsory. So there's a lot more that's done in that space. And when we do release projects like bedtime stories, we have a huge number of those spaces that sign up because they have to, (laughs) which is good. I think, you know, it should be compulsory. It absolutely should. And there are a lot of players in the space of creating education resources and curriculum content for schools. There's a lot of organisations in that space, space, both First Nations and non-First Nations. We're just one of them. And 
I think the, the friction point is time for teachers, a lack of compulsory units and also relationship. You know, a curriculum resource only gets you so far. Like bedtime stories is great. You can bring it in the classroom. But if you're from a classroom on Wadanjeri country and you're watching stories from Larrakia country up on the top of non territory, there's a big gap and a big distance between those spaces. And yes, there's similar values and similar similarities and cultures, but they're also vastly different. I think it's that local relationship piece. You know, a lot of schools don't have the resourcing, but also the um, time to be able to build relationship with local community. And I think that's the most important thing is being, bringing in elders and knowledge holders in community to be present in schools. And, you know, with that comes paying them and managing those relationships and ensuring that there's safety in the way that people enter those spaces. But I think in the end, that's, you know, a really important tool. Um, and having local education informed by First Nations communities where those schools are. But sadly, at the moment, that's rarely the case and there's a lot of work to do. But there's also a lot of people that want to do better. I think it often takes families and children in schools to like hold their schools accountable and say, what are we doing? We should be doing more. Yeah. If you don't mind, just really quickly, uh, the voice. Yeah. Campaign. I where I want to go with this is more of a reflection piece and an opportunity piece. Obviously, it's, you know, been such a significant thing into 2023. Yeah, when you look back in 2023, it's going to be really significant. Um, when you look back on it now, when you can reflect on it, was it a difficult time when you were in it, like, through it? Like, was it, did it take a lot, a super amount of energy? Um, did you feel a lot of expectation when you spoke or when anyone asked you a question? And also that kind of, you know, society versus your community. Like, can you chat about that for a little bit? What, what, you, what you felt, even you reflect back on what it was like in the time? I think collectively it was one of the worst moments that a lot of First Nations people have felt in a long time. It was something that a lot of people didn't ask for and then were deeply impacted by. Our lives were on trial. Our communities were on trial. It was a conversation beyond constitutional recognition to a conversation around whether non-Indigenous folks support First Nations people and aspirations or not. And it was incredibly harmful. The racism we saw amplified en masse, the propaganda, the, the harm, I don't think we'll understand the impacts of the harm for generations to come and I just came from a a collective yarn with a whole lot of First Nations activists who were younger last week and we spent a couple of hours just talking about it and just felt the weight of that grief and yeah. it's a really really a sad space and I think for a lot of First Nations people there was fear as well in speaking out about it and there was really different perspectives in community and yeah, I hope that people aren't really burnt from it. I hope that people will be able to bounce back and hopefully the new year will bring fresh shoots and regenerative conversations and opportunities and connection. You know, the, the voice of parliament was one theory of change and it's a really important um it was a really important moment for Australia to really look at ourselves and look inward and look at the future we wanted to create and 
think the the writing's on the wall now for for us and I think it's going to shift a lot of the way that our community hold relationship with non-Indigenous folk. You know, people have talked about the end of a reconciliation movement, an era to a reckoning. And to be honest, from where I'm sitting, I'm kind of glad that I've seen the truth of so-called Australia at the age of 27 rather than seeing it decades down the track. To know it early, to know it, you know, to know that 60% aren't there. We know that now. We can't pretend. We can't, you know, if someone tells me that Australia's not racist, I'll um, likely turn my nose up at them. <laughs> but, you know, before the referendum, people said that. Oh, we're not racist. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because, uh, um, you know, I, I was contemplating asking you, but I obviously wanted to get your reflection on it as well. So I really appreciate you sharing that um, with me and the listeners as well, Rona. Um, if we go back then to... Um, Common ground, and for you, actually, now we spoke. You've spoken. We've spoken lots about common ground. Let's focus on, on on you a little bit as well now. So, what's what are you working on? What's next for you? You obviously, you know, working on a few different projects, as you said as well. So, there's the other not-for-profit First Nations Futures, which we launched in August. So, it's growing, and it's a really exciting time in that work. Outside of it, outside of the doing, the work quote-unquote, is another career for me, which is in music. And I have an electronic music project called Rona. And that is calling me at the moment. I'm actually taking December off to write music. And I'm really excited. I feel like the referendum and watching genocide in action has made me angry and angrier than I've been in a long time. And I think pouring that anger into music is going to be really important and also special for this moment in my life. So that's what my next little bit looks like is writing music. And I think through that, through that catharsis, I'll come back in the new year with a different lens and a different sense of energy and pour that back into common ground and first nations futures. I've been thinking a lot lately about how we should think about social change in cycles, 28 day cycles. As a woman, I'm like, it's not natural to be trying to do everything all at once all the time. It's not natural to do that anyway, but just trying to be a little bit more tender with myself around my energy and really harnessing the moments when I can, as well as I've been thinking about the need to sit more and just be still and I have aspirations to sit under a tree for a few weeks and not talk to anyone. Glad I got you on the podcast then early. <laughs> Before <laughs> summer and I'm sitting under a tree. Yeah, Honestly, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we don't give enough space to reflect and sit in silence. And it's in those moments of silence where we can watch the world without ourselves in it. So it's been amazing talking to you. I'm not going to keep you much longer, but one of the parts of this podcast is that, you know, every guest I get on has to think of another guest that they can, that I can speak to, that can share a cause as well. You don't have to do it right now, Rona. You can, you know, have a think about it as well. Um, but if you can do it before you do go and sit under that tree for a few months, that would be fantastic. 
Can do. Let me sit on it. Yeah, we'll <laughs> not for three it. weeks under a tree. <laughs> well, if you want it, that's fine. I'd be interested to see who you come back with. Uh, but uh, yeah, but that, that would be that'd be great. Hey, it's been amazing um, chatting to you. Before we go, so where can people find out more about Common Ground? About you know you music, whatever. Where do they go? To the internet, to www.commonground.org.au. Or for me personally, I feel like I'm most active on Instagram. If you message me on LinkedIn, I'm unlikely to get back. Find me on Instagram. It's rona.numberla, N-G-A-M-P-E-R-L-E. Good luck spelling that one and I'm more likely to get back on that platform but follow along on the journey and if you're curious about First Nations Futures we're at www.firstnationsfutures.com Rona thank you so much I'll put that in the show notes anyway for people to be able to uh, to get Rona I always come away when I speak to you feeling enriched and and that I've um, learned something and that's the greatest compliment I can give you Um, since I've known you I feel uh, very blessed to be in your presence the work you do is is incredible and it's inspiring and um, and I hope more people um, will from this will be able to you know tune into it and and, and actually learn a little bit more and, and, and connect as well so Thank you so much for what you do and thank you for being a guest on What's Your Cause. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure, Mick. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow and share or even leave a comment. You can follow me on Instagram on Mick23Cronin. This podcast was produced and edited by Mick Cronin.